But if you've got your Bible and you like to open it, whether it's on your mobile or when you've got, whether you've got a physical Bible, uh, just to open it uh, to chapters 13 and 14 of Exodus. We'll come to that in just a minute. Um, so this morning we're continuing our series in Exodus, and Exodus is the, uh, the Exodus event is the, the most significant historical and theological event in the whole of the Old Testament, and it's good for us to bear that in mind. It, from it, there is a, a mighty flow of, of revelation. It would come to speak of one who was greater than Moses, the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, who would enact a far greater work of deliverance, redemption and deliverance from, uh, from those held by Satan and sin, an act in which Jesus himself would come and take on the reality of our own human flesh, be born in the likeness of sinful flesh, become our Passover lamb, and die in our place as our substitute and forever change the way that God feels about us. Yeah? Amen? And that's one of the dynamics of the Passover that we heard last week that Barney was talking about, that, you know, when, when the blood was put on the, the doorposts and the lintel, uh, it, I can well imagine, I'm an older son, so I can put myself in there, how they must have felt. Is, is this really going to work? You know, all of that kind of thing. Well, yeah, God told us to, to do this through Moses. We, we are being obedient. We've slain the lamb. We put the blood on the, on the doorposts and on the lintel. And, uh, and when God comes through, when the judging angel comes through, he will pass over us. Because God has said, when I see the blood, I will pass over you. So that changed the way God felt about the elder son who was deserving of justice as much as any son in the Egyptian households. God was being fair in that respect. So this morning we're in chapters 13 and 14, and I've titled it, Detours, Dead Ends, Doubts, and Deliverance. Um, I don't know whether you have found, out, found this to be the case, but the Christian life is not a straightforward journey from A to B. Anybody found that out? Yeah, yep, that's just about most of us, if not all of us. It's not a straightforward journey from A to B. Oh, I wish it was. It would make it so much easier, wouldn't it? There are doubts. There, there, sorry, there are detours and there are apparent dead ends that can lead to doubts and disappointments. Now, let's be honest. Some of those are of our own making. We do foolish things sometimes and that leads us in onto a detour and into a dead end. And it has nothing to do with God. It's our own foolishness. It's our own stupidity. It's our own failure to be obedient to God. But there is no doubt that there are others that are very definitely God's leading. Anybody been there? Yeah, that's quite a number of us, isn't it? Um, that are definitely God's leading. And I'm reminded in Isaiah 55 where it says that God says, my thoughts are not your thoughts. My thoughts, my plans are not yours. And nor are your plans mine. And we, we need to remember that, that God's thoughts and ways are higher than ours. And it reminds me of the old hymn writer who wrote many, many years ago, after some trying circumstances in his life, he wrote, God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footstep in the sea and he rides upon the storm. Those words are so true because sometimes God leads us on a detour and we kind of think, where is this going? And then we find our back, ourselves with our back, as it were, up against the wall. And it's going, God, what are you up to? And we see that right there in this story. So let's just read some of this story. I can't read it all. I timed it. The, the scripture I've gotten, it would take me almost six minutes to read it. 
So I'm going to pick some verses out as we go through. So Exodus chapter 13 and verse 17. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them along the road to the land of the Philistines, even though it was nearby. For God said the people would change their minds and return to Egypt if they faced war. And so he led the people around toward the Red Sea along the road of the wilderness, and the Israelites left the land of Egypt in battle, left the land of Egypt in battle formation. Then a bit further down we discover uh, that the Lord goes with them in the pillar of fire and in the pillar of the cloud. And then chapter 14, verse 1, the Lord spoke to Moses, tell the Israelites to turn back and camp in front of Pihavioth between Migdal and the sea, and you must camp in front of Baal Zephon, facing it by the sea. And Pharaoh will say to the Israelites, they're wandering around in the land in confusion, and the wilderness has boxed them in. I will harden the Pharaoh's heart so that he will pursue them, and then I will receive glory by means of Pharaoh and all his army, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. And so the Israelites did this. We discover that suddenly the Egyptians find out they've gone and are concerned because they've lost a, a, a huge labor force, and so they're going after them. The king of Egypt and the Egyptians uh, pursue them, and we discover down in verse 11 Suddenly, verse 10, as Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up, and there were the Egyptians coming after them. And the Israelites were terrified, and they cried out to the Lord for help. And they said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have, we done? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Is this what we told you in Egypt? Leave us alone. Uh, isn't this what we told you in Egypt? Leave us alone so that we may serve the Egyptians. It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. We can point fingers at them, can't we? But we are just as guilty of doing the same. Finding ourselves in that situation and God saying, why, didn't you, why did you bring me out? Why did you bring me to this point? God, I want to go back. You know. And then it says, Moses said to the people, don't be afraid, stand firm, see the Lord's salvation that he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. Wow. Can you imagine that? There they are, surrounded by the armies of Egypt, and they're trapped in this corner, and God's saying, you're never going to see them again. And they're kind of looking at the water behind them, they're looking at the armies in front of them, and kind of, wow, what's going on here? The Lord will fight for you, and you must be quiet or be still. And then the Lord said, can you imagine trying to do that, can't you? <laughs> Is that what you need to hear at this moment in time? You're in that kind of situation and you just need to hear God saying to you, just be quiet, be still, and watch what I am going to do. Oh. And then the Lord said in verse 15 to Moses, why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to break camp, and as for you, lift up your staff, stretch out your hand over the sea, and divide it so that the Israelites can go through the sea on dry ground. And as for me, I'm going to harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them, and I will receive glory by means of Pharaoh, and all his army, and his chariots, and his horsemen. And the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I receive glory through Pharaoh, his chariots, and horsemen. And so if we read on further down, verse 21, Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, 
And the Lord drove the sea back with a powerful east wind all that night and turned the sea into dry land so that the waters were divided. I mean, I'd have been going, wow, wouldn't you? Suddenly to see all this vast volume of sea being pushed back on either side and, and, the, and, and the ground turning dry. I mean, wow. Or as the Australian, Australians would say, awesome. And the, awesome, hey? Eh? The Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with the waters like a wall to them on their right and on their left. And the Egyptians, we read, pursued them and suddenly Moses lifts up his, his staff as they've gone across and, and the waters come back over in judgment upon the Egyptians. And then if you read on down in verse 29, the Israelites have walked through the sea on dry ground with the waters like a wall to them on their right and their left. And that day the Lord saved Israel from the power of the Egyptians and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. And when Israel saw the great power that the Lord had used against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and believed in him and his servant Moses. Wow. That was some detour, wasn't it? And that was some dead end. But it was also some deliverance. You know, and we need to, to remember that as we read this story and perhaps reflect on situations in which we find ourselves, that when God leads us on a, a detour that brings us to an apparent dead end, God actually has got a deliverance waiting for us. And that's important to remember that. God does not intend to keep you on a detour, up a dead end, doubting what he's up to. God brings us out in order to bring us in. Israel's destiny wasn't simply to be delivered from slavery in Egypt, but to be delivered, brought out, and to enter the promised land. And Jesus doesn't intend for us to leave, leave Egypt, or rather be delivered in Egypt and then leave Egypt in us. He wants to deliver us from Egypt and remove Egypt from us. And so when we read the the second half of that text in Isaiah, it's fascinating because we're familiar with the first part, aren't we, about God's ways are higher than our ways and his thoughts are higher than ours. But it goes on to say, just as the rain and the snow come down from the sky and don't return without watering the earth, making it conceive and yield plants and providing seed to the sower and food to the eater, so is my word that comes out of my mouth. It does not return to me empty. Instead, it does what I want and accomplishes what I intend. Hallelujah. If you've got a word over your life, if you've got a prophetic promise that is, is, is there and you're, you're in, on a detour at this moment in time, you appear to be at a dead end, God will not allow his word to fall by the wayside. He promises us deliverance. He promises us the land. Hallelujah. And if that's where you are, you need to hear that this morning. You need to hear the word of God. Their destiny was Horeb, was Sinai. When God called Moses at the burning bush, he instructed him, I will certainly be with you, and this shall be a sign to you that I am the one who sent you. When you bring the people of Egypt out, you will, when you bring the people out of Egypt, you will all worship and serve God in this mountain. So it says in Exodus 3, verse 12, Moses was to bring the children of Israel from Egypt to the same mountain that Moses had encountered God on, which was near Jethro's home. And we're going to have a couple of maps come up there in just a moment, I hope so. And, um, and after that, it was going to be the promised land. But first of all, they had to journey to Horeb. 
they had to journey to what we've come to know as Mount Sinai. Now, I'm sure you have heard stories about the Sea of Reeds, what's called the Red Sea in our Bibles. And you may have a Bible that has a little footnote, as I was checking several of them uh, in, in my preparation for this. And in lots of them, there's a little footnote where it says Red Sea, and the little asterisk, and down, down the bottom, it says the Sea of Reeds. And this has been a, a problem for many people over the years, and particularly the skeptic. And, um, and it causes people to doubt the whole Exodus story. How, how could God uh, act in such a way with, with such a small amount of water? Now, one, uh, one, one clever theologian said, well, isn't it staggering that God could drown uh, uh, all those Egyptians in, in six inches of water? <laughs> you know, that's, that's one way of looking at it. But it's also skirting around what is before us, because we have this picture here of these walls of water up beside the, the Israelites as they walk through and as they walk through on dry, dry ground. So the traditional route which will come up behind me. The traditional route, I don't think, does justice to the story. And you'll see it there. They leave from Goshen, and they come down here on, on the right-hand side of the Gulf of Suez across to what's called Sinai. Let me say a word about that. Apparently, there was a, a, a lady who was very spiritual who walked through various places in, in Israel and around, and she kind of said, oh, I feel this is where that place is. And that's what she felt about that. That's the only thing that is going for it. There is no other evidence for that whatsoever. And then they travel up the, the left hand of the Gulf of Aqaba up to Ezion Geba. And uh, so the crossing takes place up the top there uh, near Goshen, up near Sukkah. The problem is the, the geography doesn't fit the story whatsoever. And because the story is so out there, many scholars believe the Exodus, therefore, is a founding myth uh, fabricated to give the Hebrews uh, an identity. And that's one of the things that we're finding as evangelicals we're coming up against. That, so even the, the story of Adam is not necessarily conceived as, as being a real story, but part of the founding myth of Israel, not necessarily of the whole human race. Now, we get problems when we come over into the New Testament and, because Jesus very definitely acknowledges the reality of Adam. Moses is acknowledged, and the reality of the deliverance out of Egypt is acknowledged in the New Testament. So a better proposition, one that uh, will come up in just a moment. So, this, so the two propositions here. So let me explain. The Sea of Reeds in your Bibles, where they refer to the Sea of Reeds in a footnote, scrap it. It doesn't do justice. And uh, more recent study on the subject has found, actually, it, it, we have every right to say the Red Sea, full stop. Okay? And, and uh, so the, where we see the Gulf of Suez and the Gulf of Aqaba, it wouldn't have known, been known as that in those days. The Red Sea would have been right up those two gulfs. So you see the Israelites leaving Egypt up there, leaving and coming down, uh, one on the, on the left side, all the way down again, and then crossing here, these straits, across into Midian. Because if you go and read your Bible and you read in Galatians, you'll find about that Paul talks about Mount Sinai, which is in Arabia. The Sinai Peninsula is not Arabia. Okay? This is Arabia over on this side, and they believe that they've now discovered the site of Mount Sinai there. So they come down and up, uh, cross over at the bottom there, those straits, and up and round to Mount Sinai that way. Or they take a route across the middle and cross the uh, Red Sea at Nueva. 
Um, makes a lot more sense the story. We could talk a whole lot about that, but I don't have the time to do that. So in many ways, the journey should have been a straightforward one uh, from uh, Egypt to, to Israel. Uh, but, in it, but God is aware that if he takes them on the normal route, they are going to end up with the possibility of a battle early on. So you read that there in the first part of that story that we read. When Pharaoh let the people go, God didn't lead them along the, 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 the road that, to the land of the Philistines, even though it was nearby, for God said the people would change their minds, return to Egypt if they face war. God knows what we can take, doesn't he? And the detour that you're on may be because God knows something about you and something about what's ahead. And therefore, he's taking you on that detour to protect you and to keep you. But also, as a result of the detour, you're going to grow in him so that ultimately you will be ready for the battle. That's wonderful, isn't it? So Israel was to to grow in the ways of the Lord through all of this. God organized a detour, a detour that would turn out to be, in human terms, a dead end. Why did he do it? Because they weren't ready for battle, number one. And secondly, God wasn't finished with Pharaoh. We see that in chapter 14, and we read those verses. There was still an air of arrogance and defiance in Pharaoh. He, wasn't, he still wasn't sure who Yahweh was, the God of the Israelites. And neither was he happy to see all this slave labor leaving his land. So the purpose, as we read in 1418, is that the Egyptians will know that I am Yahweh, that I am God. In other words, that I only am God. Because, of course, as we said a few weeks ago, they had many gods. And they, they went to all sorts of different gods for whatever reason they needed. You know, more sunshine, more rain, more fertile crops, etc. They, they went to their different gods. And God reveals himself as the, the sovereign Lord over all creation, the one and only sufficient God. If you're on a detour at this moment in time, there's a reason for it. Yeah. <laughs> There's a reason for it. God is taking you on that detour for a reason. And Israel must learn the, the truth and the ways of the Lord. And one of the interesting things, things about looking at their journey is the strategy unfolds as they go along. Now, it's quite possible that Moses had been trained in the art of leading the armies and was possibly a commander and knew all about that stuff. He certainly knew his way to Midian and back and so on. But... He wasn't going to be walking according to the flesh, to use New Testament language. He was going to have to learn to walk by the Spirit, and so were the people of God. And God's ways are not our ways, and his thoughts are not ours. And so the strategy un unfolds as the journey takes place. How many of us kind of think, God, would you show me the next two or three steps before I step out on this one? You know? And if you can just make clear the next where, where this is leading and, and how it's going to work out, then I'll take the next step. Anyone want to own up to that? Yeah, there's a, there's a few of us, yeah. And probably more than have raised our hands and nodded in reality. Because we kind of like, we, we want to get our sat-nav out, our spiritual sat-nav, and, and just say, God, show me all the little links along the way uh, where you want me to get to, and then I'll start on the first one. And God says, no, that's not the way it works. 
I'll show you the first one and you be obedient unto me. There are times to stand still and see the salvation of God. That's what it says in, in verse 13 and 14 of chapter 14 there. So the strategy unfolds as it takes place. There are times when they literally, God says, stand still, watch what I'm going to do. But then a little bit later, it changes, doesn't it? You get the impression that Moses is making requests. And in verse 15, the Lord says to Moses, why are you crying out to me? In other words, there's a time to stop praying and get on with it. To move into action. Because that's the other thing. We can just say, well, God, when you move, you know, when you do some supernatural thing and it's pretty obvious that you are doing it, then I'll, 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 get, I'll put my foot forward, you know? And God says, no, you step out. You move, it's time for action. So there's a time to pray and there's a time to act. Of course, we've got again this interesting situation where it says the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart in verse 14 and it's all over these, this particular scripture, actually. In scripture, we're variously told that Pharaoh both hardens God's heart and that he hardens it himself. And I know in conversations, this is one of those things that people are picking up. You know, and, and we still can't quite work that one out. You know, how, how does that happen? You know, it's, it's not fair that God should harden his heart. You know, isn't that overriding his, his free will, etc.? The problem is our, our, our um, Western Greek thinking which is linear thinking, where everything must logically fit together. And, but there is a problem with that, because if you follow out the sovereignty of God in a completely logical way, you end up with fatalism. Yeah? Where God controls everything, what you eat for breakfast, what you put on in the morning, what, what you, where you go out tomorrow, etc., etc. In other words, you're kind of like a robot. That would be the... The, the nature of pushing that too far, push the sovereignty of God too far, and you can end up there. But on the other hand, if you, you push the, the free will of man too far, God cannot intervene. God cannot do anything. He is at the mercy of our own will, etc., etc. And it's interesting because our Greek thinking, Greek Western thinking, wants to make a logical sequence of it all. And I, I remember in my early Christian days, days I, I struggled with this. You know, because I grew up in a, in a very hyper-Calvinist situation. And, uh, and then I got saved in an Arminian church, you know? And it's like, well, how do you put those two together? Uh, and, uh, and then, you know, there are those who are Arminians who pray like Calvinists, etc. And then, you know, all, all sorts, etc. So I could spend a whole lot of time on it. But you, you see where I'm going. Now, the Hebrews don't have this problem. The Hebrews think in boxes, they think, uh, for example, of the box of God's sovereignty. And you can read the scriptures and you'll find they're able to talk about that God is absolutely sovereign, that he reigns and he rules and he, he speaks and he will bring to pass his purposes. And then they go over to this other box and they're able to speak about the, the free will of man, how God has given humanity a free will and he can make choices, etc., etc. And, uh, and, and they're able to live in that. They don't seek to, to marry the two as we like to do. So, God reigned over Pharaoh's decisions without infringing upon the freedom of his choices. That's interesting, isn't it? And the Hebrews were happy to live with this tension. And I suggest that it makes life a whole lot better for us when we do as well. And so, Exodus tells us that we are not living in a closed universe, but we are living in a universe in which God steps in and he acts and he moves in various ways. 
bow. It's not time. So you got the miracle of the Red Sea crossing. They cross the sea. They reach this point where they've heard God. They respond to God. Moses raises his, his staff and, and the, the, the wind blows and, and, and the waters part. Just the drama of that. I want to try and find a good picture for it, but it's difficult. There's so many weird pictures. And, uh, but yeah, the, the water's just parting and standing up. Just imagine it, because it took some time. They just heard this wind blowing, driving its course through this particular section of water, opening up, pushing it back, and suddenly the water's standing up on either side. So it's very clear that they are obviously at the water stand up above them, which makes crossing on the, on the Gulf of Aqaba far more likely than the Sea of Reeds. Okay? And, uh, and, and Paul picks up on this, so they, they walk through this sea on the dry ground, and God was with them, and, and we have an interesting scripture. 1 Corinthians 10, verse is 1 and 2. It says this, Now I, want you, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors, and he's writing to, to Gentiles largely in this situation, our ancestors, he calls them, our ancestors, so he's rooting that, that community back in the historic purposes of God. This is where we should value church history, where, where we should value the movement of God down through the generations, our ancestors. So he says, um, our ancestors were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And they all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock is Christ. Wow. So actually, in the New Testament, the, the Red Sea crossing, so they have come to saving faith as a result of the sacrifice of the Lamb, the Red Sea crossing becomes their baptism, both in water and in the Holy Spirit. So they were baptized in the water and in the cloud. Yeah? Are you with me? Yeah? So this is telling a New Testament story as we read this book of Exodus. And it's staggering the way it unfolds. <clears throat> There's a whole lot more we could say about that, but he... He's not only talking of the blessing of it, Paul does, but he's connecting them so that they don't become careless. And we're going to hear more about that as we travel through the book of Genesis. So Hebrews 11 verse 29 says, By faith they crossed the Red Sea as though they were on dry land. And when the Egyptians attempted to do so, they were drowned. By faith, such an essential element of the Christian life can't be a Christian without it, can you? That putting our faith in Jesus right at the very beginning, trusting him for our salvation. But that's not the end of faith. God wants us to grow in faith, and every step of the way will be opportunities to grow in grace and in faith. So, as we draw to a close there, I need to pull some of these strands together because there's a whole lot I've thrown out there this morning. I want to ask you, do you know him? Do you, do you know him as your Lord and Saviour? Are you sure that you are a Christian? It's possible to grow up in a Christian family, to grow up in Christian church in a, and, and, and partake of all these things and yet not know that reality in your own life. And I, I want to plead with you this morning, if you don't know him, you can before you go out of this room. You can right now in the, in, the, 
in these moments, just respond to him in your heart. Say, yeah, Jesus, I've never really understood all of this. I've gone through all the motions. I, I realize I'm a sinner and I need your forgiveness this morning. Lord Jesus, come and be my savior. It may be that you've made that decision, that you have been on the journey, but perhaps you've not gone through uh, the, the, the water and the cloud, to use those Old Testament terms. And Jesus says you know, very, very clearly, you know, that those who believe should be baptized. But that's another step that needs to be taken. And we, I, I'm a Christian, so well, I'm waiting for God to make it clear. Hello? Yeah. <laughs> There's a book that tells me very, very clearly, and sometimes we just need to do what's the obvious thing in the Word of God. Stop faffing around, as it were, you know? It's like the Bible says it. Sounds like a good idea to do it, doesn't it? Repent, believe, be baptized. And then the other aspect of that is being filled with the Spirit, being baptized and being filled with the Holy Spirit. We can't do this life without him. And that's the whole essence of it, that Israel needed not only deliverance, but they needed the presence of God in the baptism of the Spirit. So do we. Let's stand, shall we? I need to close. Holy Spirit, we just give this time to you. You know each one in this room. I pray for any who don't know you, help them to make that step of faith. Come to you this morning in the name of Jesus find you as their saviour and lord for any who need to make decisions about baptism to be filled with your spirit there are those this morning who are backed into corners somewhere they're on a lord if they're on a detour that's their own making please reveal it to them and enable them to get out of it but lord if it's a detour of your making help them to understand your purposes help them to to submit to you, to rest in you, and then when you speak, to act in faith to, make, to take the next step. Gracious God, we bless you for all that you're doing. We pray that you continue your work and lead us ever closer to the fullness of your purposes. Lord, we, we, we don't want to wander around in deserts. We want to be in the land. We want to be in that place of fullness of blessing. And so 